I have returned. After 15 years, I have returned. Cinematic Fantastic. Fatu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. Beaten by a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Top of the morning to you listeners. Welcome to Cinematic Fantastic Season 2. Yay! Time to get the abnormally large scissors again and snip, snip at our red ribbon. We're just, you're just snip happy. You just want to snip all the time. But it's, hey, it's okay. We did it last time, so... This is a milestone. You're right. This is a milestone. I don't want to, you know, downplay it at all. It's a milestone. It's great. Uh, and you know, I thought it was a millstone. <laughs> oh, a reference for you. That is a reference, and that. Oh wait. Uh, okay, let me guess. Uh, the monster walks. Yes. All right. Good. Wealth to youth is golden, but to age it is a milestone. See, we're gonna we're gonna quiz each other on trivia. I real quick before we get started with the podcast, I actually had an idea, and and if the listeners are cool with it or you're cool with it, I'd do it sometime. But hear me out. Write each other trivia quiz questions and go back and forth and see if we could answer them and see if we do well with it can go really obscure with it and see if we can remember indeed we read comments come on guys we do. give us some comments yes we've, we've had we've had very few comments we had tarzan the ape man blow up on youtube yeah okay yeah let's talk about that for just one little second all right so we were a little bit late to the game in getting our podcast on youtube we did it mostly in the audio realm you know, through Anchor, Spotify, whatever platform you listen to uh, to get us. But we've started putting them on YouTube, and we started getting some listens. Um, pretty decent amount for a couple. Um, the only problem is we can't tell how how long people have listened. Um, all those all those th- uh, things in the back in the back end of YouTube where you can study all that. I I have no idea how to how to study all that. So I can't tell. So give us a like, a comment, just anything. Yeah. I mean, if you subscribe, that's fine. But what we really like to see are, are we like to see likes. That sounds funny. Honestly, what we really love is solid, real, non-bot comments. People say, and emails. People saying, I really like what you did there. It, it feeds us. We really, you know, we'll do this anyway because we enjoy it. And we, we know that we hope and we know that you, we know some people that are enjoying it. We know you're enjoying it. And we've already had like one or maybe two. But literally with the Tarzan, we know there's like hundreds of you there. So guys, please give us a comment. A nice one at that. Yeah. Ask something. We'll start a chain. And honestly, you I think you can comment on um, on podcast episodes as well. Um, you know, one good way to tell us how you feel about us is by giving us a review. Even if, even if it's a terrible review, I'm actually very interested if you give us a terrible review, what, what you didn't like. Just don't tell us we're trash. No. <laughs> Just that we're trash. Just tell, tell us more than that. Tell us why, tell us why we're trash. So give us a... Who, what, when, where, and why, and how. Yes. That's from uh, Spy Kids. Yeah. So, um... Yes, so... Give us a five... Give us a five... <laughs> give us a five star uh, if you want to. All right. All right. So this is episode... 
21. It is 21. Why may you ask that? Because we have decided to count our episodes not by season, or well, this is season two, the first episode of season two, but we're calling it the 21st episode, counting all 20 of our previous seasonal episodes. Yeah, and and honestly, that's the way TV shows work, too. When they say, oh, this is the 100th episode. We want to be able to announce that. Yeah, you want to be able to have that kind of milestone. Um, We are not going to count. We're not going to count bonus month episodes. Yeah, we we might do something where we... We haven't thought about this yet, but we might do something where we do like, you know, one, two, three, four of bonus month one and then five, six, seven, eight for bonus month two. I don't know. We'll just, those are things that are still in flux and are still in discussion. So the pre-code era is behind us and the haze code era begins with us covering the Black Cat 1934. So there are zero pre-code era films we have and all the rest of them are going to be haze code uh, films, which... For this movie, is ironic, as we'll discuss later. Maybe a little bit of Karloff worshipping the big man, eh? But we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, who, who directed this movie? Uh, Edgar Ulmer? Yes. So this is a classic, enigmatically disturbing horror film from Universal Studios, their top-grossing film of the year, 1934. Uh, again, it's directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Uh, its themes of the horrors of war would be echoed in his later films, like his really well done Detour, nineteen forty five. Some good things about that one. Oh yeah, I, I've I haven't heard too much about it. Um, honestly, the only thing I've heard about Edgar Ulmer is the Black Cat. So I haven't seen any of his other stuff. Is he like a noir kind of focused guy, or what's his deal? Uh, he's sort of the the B movie guy, but we can talk about him later. Right. So first, most importantly, I want to talk about the short story that this is based on. Uh, sort of. It's a great psychological piece. Sort of about the endurance and prevalence of evil. So again, it's called The Black Cat. It's the same title. Uh, It starts with the protagonist, who's an animal lover. He's going about life when one day his wife, uh, after getting birds, fish, monkeys, and such, gets a black cat, which he names Pluto, which is interesting because it's the Roman god of the underworld. Yeah, or uh, otherwise known as Hades, yeah. Otherwise known as Hades or Satan. So this cat follows them everywhere, and both of them have a great relationship together. Uh, over time, and he grows irritable, threatening violence toward his wife and neglecting his pets. Uh, one day, he decides he's had enough and cuts his eye out. And there was no PETA. Uh, there was no PETA yet. And uh, he decides to cut it out Yikes. and hang it on a tree branch out of the spirit of perverseness. Uh, there's a great quote from this. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which gives directions to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should have not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. Uh, He says he hung it because I knew that it loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense. So, So this is what he says before, after he kills the cat. The next night, his house burns down. Uh, and in the ruins survives only but the wall at, his, at the head of his bed with the noose cat engraved in the wallpaper, presumably thrown there by someone. Wow. Uh, very ominous. This apparition haunts our protagonist's mind until one night, weeks later, a cat identical to Pluto, but for a white belly, is found on one of his barrels of rum, which is interesting that he has barrels of rum. 
Yeah, he does talk about uh, how alcohol is taken over him over the course of this story, along with, you know, the cat. Now, I, I could say something about this. Who, who's the author of this story? Edgar Allan Poe. The great man of horror short stories. Now, and he did. Did he die of alcoholism? Maybe. So inter- actually, I haven't looked at that. So, so he, so he kind of had a little bit of firsthand knowledge, I think, about barrels of rum being, you know, equal perverseness or head, it make you head toward perversity. But it's also very symbolic. Hmm. Uh, so no one's owned this cat. Uh, no one's seen this cat before. It just appeared, sort of like the previous one. Uh, so they both eagerly accompany each other. Uh, and his wife is all the glad for it, and he lives with it freely, and uh, the cat is literally just all over him, uh, until one day, uh, Loathing pops up, although for months uh, he doesn't attack it uh, for remembrance of his first deed. He's like, uh, I've already hanged a cat, I'm not gonna do uh, the horrible thing again uh, to this uh, other cat. So... Uh, one day, the cat would randomly lose its eye as well. The wife uh, loves this because, again, it's similar to the first cat. And uh, wherever he sits or goes, the cat goes to. Uh, every time he sits down, it would be on his lap or on his knees or on his uh, legs. Every time he stood up, it would trip him. And all over town, he walked with him. So the white belly would grow over time into the shape uh, that he suddenly sees as a gallows. Uh, he calls it the mournful and terrible engine of horror and crime, agony and death. So a, sy- a symbol of a hanging uh, com- on the cat's belly? On the cat's belly, yes. So he begins to hate all things and all mankind. Okay, that's a, that's a step. That's a step far, I think. And he also is remarking of his wife's jolly ignorance of his terrible feelings toward this cat. So one day, as they all walk into the cellar, he kills the cat and then his wife... With an axe, and then he buries it, as he suddenly calls it, uh, in a wall after contemplating cutting it into tiny pieces to throw in the fire, or even sell it as merchandise somehow. What? Um, so, first of all, the guy immediately has killed his wife. Yeah. For literally no reason. He immediately dissociates from his wife, calling it it and the corpse, and then wants to sell it as merchandise merchandise yeah and everybody thinks that you know stephen king or dean coons is like a, a a horror writer you know that freak that's creepy i mean edgar Allan poe can can get creepy uh so he decides uh the better place for it would be to stuff it in the wall uh apparently there are like some monks apparently somewhere that did that he recalls so he put uh the corpse in the wall and he sleeps free and blissfully uh, of the cat, you know, the cat is gone, the cat is no more. Uh, so later, when the police come, uh, obviously there's been, you know, some things thrown around where it's like, where's his wife? I thought he had a wife. Uh, so later, when the police come, he freely leads them around and around the place into the cellar where, again, the corpse is hidden in the wall. And when they're about to find him clean and clear of all things... They're about to leave the place. He just has to mention how sturdy his walls are and to tap the wall with his cane right where the corpse is. And that causes a yowl uh, to erupt, which prompts the police to unveil the wife's corpse from the wall and the cat that was stuck in there by accident. So what an amazing story we have here. It's creepy. It's creepy. It's very creepy. What do you think about it? 
Well, there's two. Th- well, first off, uh, there's two things that I have seen in other Edgar Allan Poe works that I hear that I see in this. One of them is like um, I remember there's a there was a story called the Cask of uh, Amontillado, uh, Amontillado, or whatever, I don't know how to say Amontillado. It. Amontillado. Yeah, thank thank you. Um, and somebody was was bricked up into a wall. I remember that, and I remember the Telltale Heart where the man thought he could hear the the the, you know, the beating of the heart. It was probably ticking of a of a stopwatch of a of a. Uh, you know, a gold watch or something. Oh, that tale. Yeah, so it's kind of like that in terms of, yeah, you were going to get away free, but your ego um, and the fact that you just thought you could get away with it, <laughs> you know, got you in trouble. The crazy thing about this is I don't think that somebody could do, you know, it justice by just doing it. Poe is a master of his craft in this regard. You know, doing a film of the Black Cat word for word. This would probably be a bit difficult because he does do a lot of psychological pieces, this being one of them. And again, psychological pieces when it's it's literally just a dude, his wife in his house and a guy going crazy doesn't make for much of a film. Wait, no, you could do it with a modern filmmaker, you know, the, the, you know, like a like Sam Raimi or, or Alfred Hitchcock? Yeah, Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock could have done it. A lot of those uh, people could do uh, The Black Cat. The only thing is that I think about this time... And even further, even into the 60s, people were just really into making, uh, I guess it was just open season on Edgar Allan Poe. They were making lots of movies with, Ed, you know, with, with not exact Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, but using the using the names of them. Exactly. So probably Carl uh, Lemley Jr., who was, again, the head of Universal at the time, his thought process was probably at this movie. We're on a roll with this horror stuff, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, yeah. Invisible Man. Those were a quadruple hit, yeah. indeed. So Poe's always been a really great hit in adaptations. You know, our Murders in the Room Morgue two years ago, for instance, was did that did pretty pretty good. That one's a good episode. Listen to that one, guys. Yeah, and uh, if our next movie has any mark or little relation to Poe, that's all we need to be hot for this one. So Omer can make any old movie he pleases. Just so long as it's called The Black Cat. So this movie does have a suggested by the Edgar Allan Poe story sticker right on it, which is disappointing. Because except for the cat that is black and the title, this movie quite literally is just Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff have beef the movie. Right, yeah. But, I mean, that's not bad in and of itself. I mean, this is the first pair-up of, you know, two horror juggernauts, so it's pretty good. But... Lugosi and Karloff have beef. The movie is what we're reviewing, basically. There's another one that came out, that comes out, I think, around, either in the same year or very, very close by, that could be called, you know, uh, Lugosi and, and Karloff have beef. And it is, it's called The Raven. Um, another Edgar Allan Poe story. It is, but the only connection, at least the only couple of connections it has to Poe's work is that there is a, a raven uh, he misses his wife Lenore, and then it and then it veers off into this other story about doing surgery on a criminal to change his face, and then he doesn't finish the job. Exactly, and probably a worser case indeed of this. But yeah, literally, you have this great psychological piece that we've analyzed all about. You know, this guy's going crazy, the endurance and prevalence of evil in society, how it hanged around this dude, and the alcoholism especially would get to him. Right. To the point that he literally just murders the cat and his wife just randomly, 
and he's so sly and he's literally doesn't care at all that he murdered someone. He's not even, he doesn't feel guilty at all, even when the police comes. That's just, he's insane yeah, at this point. Yeah, and, and it's a good story to read. But the sticker on this movie in the title cards that says suggested by the Edgar Allan Poe classic I saw in a Revere say that might as well be sort of slightly borrowed from this really great and all the more better classic movie by yeah but how could how how can you go wrong yeah carl lemley was like how on earth could you go wrong and carloff so this movie from people fans of the black cat and edgar Allan poe would probably be very sort of disappointed by this movie i mean seeing the title of the black cat before realizing it was an edgar Allan poe story uh made me think of all the cool ways you know they could explore the theme of witchcraft as a whole you know the black cat is a, a symbol of a witch, after all. They do talk about that in the book and a little bit in the movie as well. It never goes anywhere. Or maybe even bad luck is a concept, because, again, uh, in America, black cats are bad luck. Either two of those, as concepts, you could explore those in a whole movie, and it would be very much more interesting, but maybe probably slightly to the code. And uh, seeing that suggested by Poe sticker revealed this movie is actually just a confusing mess in terms of the theming. It, it is fairly confusing mess. Of it a can movie. be confusing. But what it does get away with, man. Yeah. Because again, you do have Karloff worshipping the big man himself. Lucifer. Lucifer. Yep. The worm. That devil. So there is a lot of, you know, sort of disappointments with this movie. I do have some lines from the 1942 trailer, because this movie didn't have a trailer, I guess, so the 1942 trailer does say, this cat's yowl is fatal as a death rattle. You'll forget you saw Frankenstein and Dracula when the black cat leads you to the year's weirdest mystery, which, if I do apply those to the black cat uh, 1934, I could be like, where's the mystery? There's literally not any mystery. And forget Dracula and Frankenstein, no way does this compare. That's never going to happen. Those are classics. So uh, uh, Edgar Ulmer uh, at the time was fairly new. He only had like four pictures under his belt. Yeah. Uh, but he did supposedly work on such sets as Metropolis, M, and Dergolum, and uh, therefore had good relations with Fritz Lang. So he apparently did have that under his belt, which to Carl Lindley Jr. would be a perfect fit, right? You know, plus... Having both Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff would already make this a smash hit before it was even written, as long as no screw-ups occurred. Which, indeed, sort of is a half-foolproof strategy. Yeah, yeah, and, and honestly, well, this movie does have, like you said, connections to um, some of our past episodes. We M was one of our bonus episodes, and we did, um, of course, we did another... Dergolem was an episode, Dergolem, our second episode. Yeah. But, you know, if, even if you take out the title of The Black Cat, just take just take that title straight out. I think this is still a decent movie. Some of the weirder elements of it is why I like it. Like how they got away with that. or Wow, that's, that's dark. Other than those things, though, it's really kind of tame. Again, this was the year the code came into effect, and we'll talk about the code later. So I did want to shortly talk about uh, the legacy of this movie, though, because there was, again, a 1942 version with Basil Rathbone and Broderick Crawford, yeah. uh, which was less faithful than Black Cat of this one, 
uh, but it was more successful, strangely, than the Black Cat 1934. None of yeah, none of them are really based off the story. They're still you know banking on all that. So uh, there was a 1981 version, which with uh, Patrick McGee or Maggie as a man who can communicate with the dead, sort of dropping off in quality. And an even lower quality 1978 Japanese TV serial episode, The Black Cat Murder Case, directed by Yusuge Watanabe. So it was dropping in quality, and then at this point there was a TV serial episode based on The Black Cat, even farther out and less quality. Right, exactly. It definitely could have been worse with The Black Cat 1934, but at least it's the higher Black Cat adaptation than uh, the newer ones are. The thing that makes it for me with The Black Cat is is the fact that you've got Boris Karloff versus Lugosi, and it's a kind of a uh, a switch a little bit in this one because, uh, as you'll find out, uh, Bela Lugosi is actually a protagonist, and Karloff is, is, Karloff is a villain. Yeah, Lugosi does a great job of portraying like, this dual morality of sorts, because, again, against Karloff, he's the hero of sorts. He's the protagonist, you know, someone to sympathize with. Sad, he's got a traumatic backstory. But his manner of revenge in this movie is disturbing. In a way, you might think he's also the villain. Yes. Man. Yes, exactly. You gotta see this movie to see this, because the ending is just so... It's bonkers. So creepy bonkers. It is, it is. Especially the way he, you know, touches uh, Joan's hair, which we'll talk about later. Uh, as he sleeps near the beginning, this gives off some alarms. So first impressions are awful weird. The first impressions of Lugosi were creepy, but honestly, it's because I was kind of bringing my visions of him from Dracula, where he was both creepy and suave, but, but evil. Does he prove you wrong? Sort of, but not really. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But the thing is, though, uh, Karloff is just, he's slinky and, and, and smooth. He moves with, with kind of a... Almost like he is a feline. He's wearing this black robe almost all the time, and he's got these piercing eyes, strong but but thin, um, like a cat. He's got this really sharp-looking, almost, I wouldn't say a mohawk, but almost looks like a mohawk, sharp kind of hair. This guy (laughs) takes it, you know, takes the cake on that. Um, And it's, I don't know, he's got a feline grace is the way he moves very... Again, a review of Karloff is that Karloff's, you know, he has a stilted, sparse rhythm of speaking. Uh, This is comparable to his role in The Mummy as well. A little review of that. Uh, Actually, funny enough, Boris Karloff said years later uh, how Bela Lugosi was nervous and insecure of the idea that Karloff would steal scenes from him, you know, be the star of the show overall during him. He's like, oh, maybe you're so much better and I'm not really that great uh, during the film with the Black Cat. Uh, when Karloff tried to reassure Lugosi, he didn't believe in such nonsense. The two of them worked fairly well together, actually. Yes. And they do. And the, th- well, the thing is, Lugosi, I can tell you some things about Lugosi, his life, is that he he was often, he had a love-hate relationship with being typecasted. Like, he didn't want to always play those Dracula and, and mad scientist roles. However, Boris Karloff really did... Uh, lean into that typecasting. He did. There is a quote by him talking about typecasting and how you should be glad for it, which I should find somewhere. Editor William here to say that the quote was, uh, they tell me I'm typecast. He said, well, I've been fortunate. Actors are extremely lucky to be typecast like any tradesman who is known for specialization. 
It is a trademark, a means by which the public recognizes you. The monster was indeed the best friend I could ever have, which, there is, I couldn't find this spoken by Boris Karloff anywhere. There, the, the last part does seem similar to uh, a thing that he actually does say, which I'll put here. Now, they go on without you because you only made the first three. Don't you regret the monster tales? No, not really. The monster turned out to be the best friend I ever had. But it's fascinating that, according to the Encarta Book of Quotations, the monster was indeed the best friend I could ever have, was a quote, uh, was quoted in a connoisseur magazine from 1991, so I guess I'll just have to trust my word on that, you know? I tried my best to find a clip where he was actually saying this, but I sadly couldn't find it, because it seems fairly obscure, I guess, of a quote, somehow, so... Uh, but, uh, this is all I wanted to say, so back to your daily scheduled program with us talking about the Black Cat. Yes, um, I think, I think Karloff, he kind of understood what people liked about his roles and things like that, and he played a lot of different types, but they all had some similarities as to, as to the darker elements. And they'd be fairly good buddies through working together on movies such as, you know, The Raven, they continue the, the, the Invisible Ray, we're doing that one. Yeah. Uh, Son of Frankenstein yes. later. You'll find out. 1940 with Peter Lorre. We talked about that earlier. You name it, man. They were good together. thing about Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, those kind of movies, people say that the best acting job or the best role that Bela Lugosi ever had was Dracula. And let me tell you, I would like people to, to watch him as Yegor in Son of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein because he plays... Uh, this character with such uh, menace and uh, and just kind of a, kind of subtle playfulness and creepiness that it's just it's really good. It's Chef's Kiss good, and I I I dare you. You haven't seen him yet, but I dare you to, to see and just go. Hey, that is a really good role that he did. That is you know, and, and honestly, everybody everybody always says Igor, but they're talking about Fritz from from the first Frankenstein. But this Igor. He's more of a creepy character, and uh, I think you'll like him a lot. But Bell Lugosi had some range to him. And he was a lot more expressive in this movie, especially. Lots of expression from him compared to, you know, Dracula and some of the other things he's been in as well. He does have a lot of expression in this one. Yeah, and, 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 and honestly, you have to, if you get used to this Hungarian accent, you can understand what he's saying. Um, but I think that a lot of people, they had one idea of Bell Lugosi. But this was uh, not leaning into his typecasting too much. So he well he honestly he got he got to play a Hungarian character. So you can feel comfortable in the skin. Vitas Vertigast, you know, is is uh, is Hungarian, and this takes place in in Hungary. So a quick thing on the other actors. Uh, of course, this movie does have uh, not really uh, having Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff exactly just there on the sidelines, beginning this picture on the train is uh, Joan and, uh, I don't know his name, I'll call him Henry, I guess, maybe, uh, I don't know his name, um, is a couple together that's sort of the framing, uh, of this picture, it does have them, but they barely do anything overall together, I mean, I guess the woman does get captured, Joan gets captured, but the man is played by David Manners, and David Manners is just David Manners. He does okay. I honestly, honestly, he. But he holds no importance to the story. No, 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 not no. too much. Joan either, which uh, is played by Julie Bishop. Oh, uh, actually, uh, in the movie, you'll be like, "Hey, who's Julie Bishop?" Well, I see uh, Jacqueline Wells here on the title card. Uh, reason is, 
Her name used to be Jacqueline Wells uh, before she became popular, and uh, she decided to change her name. I think, actually, uh, this was at the time she was with Humphrey Bogart. She did some stuff with that. Action in the North Atlantic with Humphrey Bogart making every historic moment unforgettable. I like your voice. That's not what you like about me. Well, that's all I know about you so far. So she changed her name to Julie Bishop because, oh, Jacqueline Wells is a B-movie name. I gotta have an A-movie name, you know? Where did we see David Manners? David Manners wasn't Dracula. As John Harker, and he was also Frank Wemple in The Mummy. Both fairly unimportant characters. Uh, visuals, the sets for the house that this mostly takes place in, where it usually expect, you know, creepy cobwebs and shadows, uh, is strangely modern and metallic. Uh, compared to the outside of the place. Has an atmosphere. Kind of, uh... It is indeed hard to describe. It may well be an atmosphere of death. Because it's like, usually it's a horror film. You think it's in a spooky place. No, it's in a modern, sleek uh, house. It does look like a modern house, as we'd call it today. Art Deco kind of design? Sort of Art Deco-y. It's interesting because this is like, this is a century ago. And this is the sort of stuff that we'd find in a modern rich house today. It's fairly interesting that there was a lot of prediction and uh, maybe there was houses like what this somewhere. What about the somewhere. clock? You know, the clock was semi-digital, you know, in the way that it rolled the numbers Oh, over. yeah. That was like, it was a big box that looked sort of digital, which sort of predicted, you know, the digital age. Also, the, uh, the intercoms. And there's lots of, you know, secret passages in this place. There's a spinning room revealer, which, you know, uncovers doors as it spins. Uh, they should have done more with that, actually. That's a pretty good device. But There's a similar, there are similar things in The Raven, uh, because there's a torture chamber in The Raven that has a, a pendulum in it, which is like from Edgar Allan Poe. Lots of good set pieces. There, so... Yeah, this movie does have some good set pieces. And this movie does have some German expressionistic cinematography from a John Mescal. Yeah. It was pretty great cinematography, you know, showing of the house most of the movie takes place in, as well as some vehicle shots at the beginning. Those are pretty cool. Uh, some creative shots, like showing Lugosi's reflection in the train window. Uh, Dad mentioned that this proves he's not a vampire. Right. Which is funny. <laughs> okay, well, he does show up in the reflection, so he's obviously not a vampire. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, there's a scene where Peter Allison... His name is Peter. Sorry, not Henry. We've got a Henry later, but whatever. Uh, Peter Allison uh, heads to bed, and he covers the screen with his dark furry blanket. Uh, as a transition of perspective to him going to bed, which is an interesting shot. Yeah, those th- those those get kind of common later on. And, they, but... and there's a shot showing the only but the shadows, as we'll talk about later in the plot as well. So, this score. The score is famous for being one of the first movies to have a soundtrack throughout the movie. Uh, sort of comparable to King Kong doing the same thing with the original music. So it's probably, it's one, it's one of the first of the things that did that. Was this movie mostly original music? The answer would be no, no. not really. <laughs> not really. Uh, they had uh, a variety of obscure classical pieces. I mean, at least they didn't slap in Swan Lake. Oh, but... they already they they played Swan Lake to death uh, from from Dracula and the Mummy. They've just milked that. But it's interesting how King Kong came out and that was full of original music. Yeah, but that was fifty thousand dollars though. And that was like the first movie that had soundtrack throughout for RKO and Universal sort of had to catch up at this point. So because at the time. They were doing stuff like, you know, The Invisible Man, which doesn't compare in terms of soundtrack coverage to that. So, which is why they put classical music all throughout it. Honestly, it did match pretty well in a lot of cases. 
Uh, one objectionable thing is the first um, scene we see of the cat is a little bit too jolly. I think they played the the unfinished symphony here, which was I think it was fairly jolly though. It almost feels like a dance. Uh, but some places uh does definitely need to be better elsewhere. I'd love to see more string texture because classical music always has a certain texture to it in the strings and there's a lot of string pieces in uh, there, there's so some there's some i would have loved you know some more like you know the thing they do you know some pizzicato they didn't do any pizzicato yeah so they could have done like a brass choir section maybe just put it up there's a really good beethoven song in here that once i heard it i went i've heard it a million times in movies and i wanted to hear it again so that was a really well-placed uh song there's some litzt and some tchaikovsky but it could have used more variation of texture maybe use something from the romantic era because you know the classical era does indeed have that certain texture about it that it always has and it's like you know do something else man uh what is the the musical piece that gets repeated so much that just kind of loses me. It is a variation of Romeo and Juliet that plays. It's very similar, but weirdly changed, probably because they wanted to, I guess, really. But it represents love nonetheless. It has slight changes. It doesn't begin with the dee-dee, that's just sort of iconic, but it does It does do the do-do-do-do-do-do part. And uh, a little bit of a comparison here. Yes. Indeed, they do use that a lot throughout the film, sort of representing Joan, uh, Joan Allison. Uh, so the director, he really just worked on B-Pictures his whole life. He was called the king of PRC, uh, the smallest and least prestigious company in America. It never spent more than a thousand, $100,000 on a movie. What does PRC stand for? Uh, it was like production releasing corp or something. You know, when you said PRC, I was like... Poverty Row Company, but no, that's not... Exactly. We talked about Poverty Row... Well, I wouldn't say 100000 is Poverty Row. It's a lot less than that would be Poverty Row. You, you couldn't use big-name talent. You had to just, just get who you could. There wasn't too much effort in script set and plot. Now, sometimes you can you can pull out a decent movie out of, out of Poverty Row, and I would say that Vampire Bat was, but Monster Walks was not. Uh, listen to those ep- yeah, episodes. Yeah, no one knows what Vampire Bat is, so go watch our episode and maybe the movie as well because it's an interesting piece. I liked it. Has it. Dwight Fry in it. So, uh, but what I can tell you, what I can tell you about this is that I wonder how much money, other than the main stars, how, how much money that got spent on Jar- Jarmal Perzig, whatever his name is, <laughs> Yarno Perzig, uh, his house. 
I think they did spend thirty thousand dollars on it, did they not? Or it was it was thirty thousand, you know, now money, but I don't, probably something fairly ludicrous. It, yeah. it was a lot. Uh, but Edgar did have a odd fate uh, after the movie. He stayed with Universal mostly until he got kicked out for an affair with, uh, eventually marrying uh, Carl Junior's nephew's wife, uh, and he never returned to major studios again. Shirley Castle. Yeah, Shirley Castle. They didn't like. Uh, that someone was encroaching on the, the Lumley family, so it's like you know you're you're pushing in on my wife, the the Carl Lumley's nephew. That's pretty easy to do. Remember uh, that old uh, that old joke we did, um, you know, uh, Lumley with the big family. Everybody everybody was connected up with the Lumleys some way in, fa- in fa- fashion. So I don't know if I'm really you know super mad. I I just think that if you're in the business, you're gonna look for somebody to hang out with or, or be you know be romantic with. Just make sure that they're really not connected up with the Lumleys because you're gonna get in trouble. Yeah, make sure that they're not married to anyone. So, uh, quick review again. The movie does seem to catch a lot of the expressionistic silent horror vibe in it, and it's a nice BC tier Universal monster movie movie. Although it doesn't really have monsters in it. Uh, behind the Mummy so far, I would probably rate it. Yeah, I would say too. And, and and the thing is, though, a lot of these movies, the great thing about them is that they're decent, they're good, they're pretty good, and they don't overstay their welcome. I mean, they're like, you know, some of the other movies that we watch that we, that we really like, um, sometimes they do go for like an hour and a half and you're like, oh, this is still really good, you know, or, t- or even sometimes two hours. And you're like, oh, this is still really good or even longer. But this really was just Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi have beef the movie. That's all they really do. Uh, they try and get at each other, and then he snaps back, and that's literally it. Boy, do they ever. And the ending is ex- it's bonkers. exhilarating. If they really showed what they did uh, in the movie, um, this sucker would not have been put out. Oh, by, by the way, like you said, the Hayes Code. Yeah, the Hayes Code got at the Black Cat a lot. Uh, it was attacking a scene they had in mind of a cat licking blood on Jones' shoulder. Uh, the original opening scene would have been a wedding, and that would have probably been too great of a choice for this movie. Uh, the appearances of corpses, the suggestion of German nationality of the people attending the ceremony, which is, you know, oh, the the Germans are attending there, so they're terrible, you know? That was the thing. They were like, oh, don't do that. The There was another suggestion that the ritual was a parody of an actual religious ceremony, which is interesting because some people reported, oh, this scene would seem similar to another thing that we went to. And Britain and Japan would be a lot tough on this movie. Yeah, uh, Britain in particular did rename this picture the House of Doom because apparently black cats were good luck in the country. Yes. So, again, you want to call it something different. I think it did uh, be renamed uh, to The Vanishing Body for literally no reason. <laughs> right, I don't know what that... I don't know any bodies that know, vanished. I don't know why. Maybe there were there was another movie that House they had. of House of Do- whatever it's called. What it was is better than the Vanishing Body. You know what? You know what? I I've heard a theory. Okay, there's another movie uh, Bill Lugosi did called The Corpse Vanishes. Oh yeah, that was probably what they were going at. Where it's like, oh, the Vanishing Body, the Corpse Vanishes. It's the, the same thing. So it probably advertising sort of nodding toward that good film. Uh, sometimes they they try to. You know, it, it basically got released later, and that's why they had that title. And I wonder if they were trying to capitalize, like you said, give a nod to another movie. Uh, but Italy did reject this movie because it could create horror, which, uh, yeah, no yeah, duh. it's a horror it, movie. It, it does create horror. 
So Italy is like, it could create horror. And Universal is like, yeah, yes. that's why we made it. <laughs> yeah, that's why we right, made it. Right, exactly. Uh, Austria banned it for its betrayal of an Austrian as a military traitor and main criminal, thus offending the national feeling of the people. So they didn't really like Yeah, how... and because the war angle where they were talking about World War One, They were like, oh, because he was like an ex-war criminal guy uh, in the movie. So they're like, oh, that would be so offensive, you know? It uh, was re- reissued in 1938 with the Hayes Code approval, though. All right, so real quick, uh, the budget for this movie was $91,125. Boris Karloff got paid more. He got 7500 Bela Lugosi got 3000 David Manners, now, don't he got 3125 But David Manners, they had to pay Republic Pictures, I think, $2,000 of that. So, really... So the, the stuff they didn't get too much of was shrinked anyway, so that's interesting. Yeah, I think so. It got 95000 as the final cost of the movie, which is fairly, fairly low, actually. Yeah, for, mo- for, for modern movies it is, but... For modern for back movies, then, it was but, a pretty pretty decent cost. Oh yeah, this probably is the the cost uh, with inflation. Oh uh, yeah, with inflation. With inflation removed. So the uh, the New York Times did write: the Black Cat is more foolish than horrible. The story and dialogue pile the agony on too thick to give the audience a reasonable scare. What? What do you think of that? I I don't know. These movies, a lot of these movies, I think, get people nostalgic. They start you know they start liking older. Movies because they're a bygone era. They're a different kind of st- yeah, storytelling. Yeah, Tomatoes would have an eighty-eight percent on it, seventy-seven point seven out of ten. People at the time were like, "This is." People at the time were like, "Oh, this is yeah." Terrible and, but film. we know you and I know how far horror would get, but it's mild in comparison to to modern yeah, stuff. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes writes, making the most of the Karloff Lugosi star pairing and loads of creepy atmosphere. The Black Cat is an early classic in the Universal Monster Movie Library. Philip French, a critic, called it the first and best of seven Karloff Lugosi joint appearances. This bizarre, utterly irrational masterpiece lasting little more than an hour has images that bury themselves in the mind. They do. And that's stuff I would agree with, definitely. The New York Times is... Lost their marbles, rock off their bottom. Yeah, it, look, look, it's it, it's an hour, it's an hour or so of your time. It's got a scene in there, okay? A quote satanic ritual. Um, is it based off of some stuff that that somebody brought back from an Al- Alistair Crowley? Possibly, but they kind of made a lot of that stuff up. One last thing you want to talk about: uh, the Hayes Code history. Uh, we've been throwing around the word Hayes Code. How this is the year the Hayes Code came in. Uh, so, uh, Hayes Code was named after Will H. Hayes, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, uh, MPPDA, uh, from 1922 to 1945. Um, this would be renamed to the Motion Pictures Association of America and, uh, 2022, it would be just the Motion Pictures Association. Uh, that's what be, re- be renamed to in, like, 1960 would be the new rename and, uh, 2022, the MPA as the uh, the whole title. Um, so, he made the Production Code Administration. Uh, it was founded in 1930 flat, PCA. Uh, basically, uh, the story went down. The government had ruled in 1915 that movies were not in the First Amendment, uh, which was about free speech. Uh, some movies were not in the category of uh, free speech. There was a lot of, you know, like, oh, such 
uh, such heathenness in the 1930s and all sorts, all of the bad stuff in there. Uh, the the government took notice, uh, contemplated making, you know, censor board, you know, because they're not free speech. We can, you know, get a big censor board for our whole government. But Hollywood is just like, you know, we'll just do it ourselves and sweep it under the rug before then. And now we got the code. So, uh, Father, some effects of this. You think you can name some? Well, I do know. I do know that there there were movies that had either suggested or overt. Just to like be... uh, so, we had, for instance, Tarzan and Jane. Yes. We talked about that in our Tarzan the Eight Man episode. So that wouldn't fly. Yeah, there was a there was a movie. Uh, I think I talked about this sometime in the past. It was called Quo Vadis. Um, that was a. Uh, it was English. It was it just used a, a Latin title, but it was about uh, Christians uh, being persecuted. And there was a scene where a guy, uh, three people, got speared with a trident or something like that, straight through the oh, stomach. Oh yeah, that one. And that w- that wouldn't fly either. No, it wouldn't. And so some big examples of how the effects would go is the religious priests going to be shown in a bad light, nor criminals a good light. There's a lot of pictures, you know, like M and Night of the Hunter that sort of have a little bit of this uh, in there, especially M is showing off, you know, criminals could be, well, not really such in a good light, but like in general, criminals in a good light, such as, you know, gangster, gangster movies. Gangster movies like James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. The, those did sort of have, you know, the rise and the fall of the gangster, which was probably due to the code yeah. uh, restrictions, because you had to have them, you know, be beaten in the end by the police. So the criminals couldn't be in a good light, religious priests couldn't be shown in a bad light, uh, nor could, you know, the sanctity of marriage and family as a concept probably going to be shown in a bad light either titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing officers now that's sort of weird but i guess that probably applied to something the use of the flag probably the american flag i guess that could be used well no you 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 gotta watch out how you use it because because you could be like oh freedom for the bad the worst reason if you fold up a flag wrong and put it upside down yeah they take that stuff very seriously so you just have to be careful about how you do a lot of that, and I, I understand that. Nobody could be shown pregnant or having births. Right. So babies could just pop up randomly right. in some movies. <laughs> yeah. A big instance of this in film school, you'll see this a lot, Stagecoach. We did talk about that in our Citizen Kane bonus episode. Yeah. Uh, Stagecoach uh, had a moment where the character was supposed to be pregnant and randomly had a baby uh, in the movie, but... They literally had no indication of this until they showed a baby on screen. They time they time skipped it. Not necessarily. They just didn't show any indication at all of being pregnant or giving birth at a hospital or anything. Uh, another thing, revenge is a premise or main theme. Cause, uh, but ooh, that sort of encroaches on this movie because revenge is sort of prevalent. I mean, later on, when the rating systems of the MPAA, when they that came in. And if somebody wants something that just that can be a little bit more creative and a little more dark, that's when you get into the 1960s, yeah. But uh, for now, sort of that idea, you can sort of get a bit more of that in, uh, you know, some film noirs and westerns, B movies. Those had a bit easier for the code because you know westerns are predictable, film noirs are sort of predictable, B movies are sort of uh, not much too looked at. Even though the criteria was often too strict when conveying things like, you know, Frankenstein's wanting to be God, stifling more complex expressions the directors wanted to tell a lot of the time, Orson Welles could do it, Alfred Hitchcock could do it, even Looney Tunes could do it. They did a lot of their stuff in the Hayes Code, and they made amazing stuff. So did a lot of people. I mean, you have uh, Gone with the Wind. That's a pretty good one. 
Uh, that one did air under the code, but they did a pretty good job with that. That's amazing. I mean, even Looney Tunes could have, like, overly violent, you know, slapstick comedy. But, I mean, they probably could get uh, a lot of Hayes Code things. Uh, the Hayes Code probably didn't look at it too much as serious because, you know, it's Looney Tunes. It's supposed to be silly. You can still do really good things under the code. Oh, oh, by the, uh, by the way, I think that... Edgar Omer was not a big fan of the Hayes Code. I mean, what look what he directed. Well, they said, can you scale back on some of these scenes? And what he would do is he'd film longer scenes or versions. And he probably did a lot of reshoots of a lot of the scenes. That's probably why it's so messy is because the Hayes Code probably had some issues. He would show them certain stuff to the Hayes people and they'd be like, okay. And then he'd be like, all right, guys, pull out the, the, the grungier version. And they would do that instead. But the odd thing is, we've been, I've said that it was ironic because especially we know have Boris Karloff, Worship at the Bitman himself. There's a lot of different issues and revenge is a main theme a little bit. Torture. Torturing. Uh, especially the end scene would probably get, definitely got a lot of, you know, looking at where it's like, oh, that's by terribly disturbing. Please don't show that. What, he stole and married somebody's wife and then, then, then the daughter? Yeah, uh, that was... But that's not that's not his daughter. That's that's uh, Vetus Vertigas. Yeah, but a lot of the times... His daughter. Uh, in Hayes Code stuff, at the beginning, I mean, we'll talk about this in Bride of Frankenstein as well, that had a, uh, had a sticker with a, this was approved by the Hayes Code... Uh, the production uh, corporation administration, the PCA. Whatever. This has been approved for all audiences. Have you seen those? Like at the... approved for all audiences. Uh, that does appear in the middle of trailers. That's probably where that stemmed from. But they had a little sticker at the beginning, or like somewhere at the beginning of the film, in the middle of the title cards, they'd have a little logo in it. Or in the credits of a movie, they'd also have the logo in it. You know, uh, th- that wasn't on this movie, and for a reason because uh, because the code was actually enforced in July. As we said, it was uh, founded in 1930, and they were trying their hardest to push everything under the rug. It finally was enforced in 1934, but in July. This movie, however, came out in May. So it, <laughs> it came out right. two months before the code was actually enforced. There was still difficulty with them, but if they had just released it two months later, they wouldn't probably be able to even release the movie without the full approval and sticker. Their re-release, as I said before, 1938 re-release did come out with Hayes Code approval. So, I mean, that was the issue with a lot where it's like, oh, you're going to do a re-release, you have to cut some stuff. Yeah, but the the version that, that is circulated uh, in the modern era, you know, on DVD, uh, anywhere that you can watch should it. Should be the original version. It is the 34 version that you see. You don't see the re-release. And that's glad. So, again, that's all I really have for the production what do you think of all this information, Father? Well, the, my first thought is that this is that you've got the big tent pole features, the ones that are like that hold the tent up, right? You've got your your Draculas, your Frankenstein's, your mummies. They were probably to, I guess, after Bride of Frankenstein, it was diminishing returns. I mean, you know, you got really good, really good, nuts, it's okay, uh, okay, getting kind of loony. Okay, I don't like this one. And now you're just in comedy pictures by this point, Abbott and Costello. Oh, we and we are gonna see some. Comedy and honestly honestly those are those are pretty pretty great but for now a quick break uh, and then we'll resume back to the plot of this picture which should be interesting it's a doozy but we'll bid adieu to the production of the black cat 1934 and we'll see you again soon for the see break. You on the flip-flop <laughs> see you on the flip side 
listeners, welcome again to uh, the first episode of Season 2, Episode uh, 21, Black Cat, 1934. You get the drill. Uh, just wanted to quickly note that as of now, we've seen uh, our Tarzan the Ape Man episode on YouTube grow to 560 views, which is like mega bonkers. I mean, all the rest of our videos get like 50-ish, which is pretty good. I mean, we know you're out there, but like... 500 is just bonkers. Yeah, I, d I don't know what is different about that episode. Maybe the algorithm or something. Yeah. Maybe people just like the episode a lot. So maybe the algorithm just struck a gold mine or something, and we just created something that good that, like, 500 people could enjoy it and potentially be able to get to listen to some more of our episodes, which is just bonkers. Why not? Absolute thank you. And, yeah, thank you Give very much. Give us some comments again. Seriously, guys, we know you're there. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I looked at some of it, and I saw that a lot of it was uh, suggested, uh, so it maybe it is the algorithm. Yeah, the algorithm could do that sometimes. People are into apes, or they're into uh, Tarzan for some reason, and there you go. And there you go. I guess it's just a Tarzan kind of year. Uh, so again, my father is going to be doing the plot for the section. We did the production section uh, last time with me. I covered some cool little things about it. There definitely could be, you know, more to discuss with that, especially, though, the black cat and stuff. But, you know, and if you guys want me to review Edgar Allan Poe's stuff, go check out our WordPress. I might feel like writing some blog posts about Edgar Allan Poe reviews that be interesting compare uh stuff like the Telltale Heart and uh, the Black Cat. Yeah. Maybe the Cask of Amontillado as well. Throw that in there. That'd be cool. Yes. So check that out. So the thing about this movie is that if you just think of it as as which of the Poe movies starred Bela Lugosi for Universal, then you'd have to think of it kind of as a trilogy. What was the first Poe Murders on the Rue Morgue, uh, The Black Cat with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Oh, so the third was The Raven. The Raven with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. We're not doing that one, but that'd be fun to watch again. Yeah, I... Seeing the second movie outing with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff have beef, the movie, the sequel. Yeah, they have beef. I will tell you that Karloff keeps getting top billing. It's literally so simple as just Karloff. Karloff, yeah. Not even his first name, just Karloff. And now he's just so popular. It's the mystique of, of the single name, you know, the Madonna, the Beyonce, the Sting. But with The Raven, Bill Lugosi gets more screen time, and, and, and Karloff gets top billing over him. I'm sorry, that's something that Bill Lugosi always, maybe he kind of low-key didn't like, but uh, a lot of people try to make it like there's this battle between them for real, like they really didn't like each other in real life. They were okay. I mean, you know, I think it's they respect each other, at least on the surface. We don't know what's going on underneath. We just, we can only speculate. Oh, probably the only battle would probably be like, you know, the House of Frankenstein and Dracula stuff would probably entail some battling between stuff. There was Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, which... Yes. Did he play a Wolfman? He, he, Bela Lugosi played Frankenstein's monster in, in Frankenstein versus Wolfman. They couldn't get Boris Karloff for that. So you're just slowly missing, just barely missing the shot of having both of them do a battle, but... But House of, House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein do not have those actors playing the parts. Probably because they had probably, you know, he had his run. He had, like, three mainline Frankenstein movies. Dracula had, like, two, if I recall. Yeah. So they both had their good run. In the 1940s, they started splitting and doing some other things. Bela Lugosi played a vampire, played one called, I think, called Mark of the Vampire, and that one supposedly... 
Some people say that he played a better vampire than he did even in, in Dracula. I don't know. We'll have to see. But the movie does start, uh, if we jump into it, with various shots of the bustling sort of crowds in a train station. So they're all getting ready. Various sweeping nice shots. What happens next, Father? The opening theme is Romeo and Juliet Overture. You're going to hear that a lot. You're just going to have to get used to it. So the train is called the Orient Express. This is actually a famous uh, train because we have a murder on the Orient Express, which was a Agatha Christie novel. She was a mystery writer. Anyway, so people are loading things onto the dining car. Two people get on the dining car. Joan, played by Jacqueline Wells, and Peter Allison, played by David Manners. Yeah. It, Again, Jacqueline Wells would change her name to Julie Bishop uh, once she switched sort of from the B-movie uh, actress to the A-movie actress sort of idea. B-list celebrity to C-list uh, A-list celebrity. Well, a lot of times when you when you move to those B-movies to the other, you want to kind of differentiate yourself uh, from those other roles. And especially when you're with stuff like in Humphrey Bogart, which, again, I don't remember the title of the thing that they were together in. Action in the North Atlantic. But... Humphrey Bogart's a big He's name. He's a big deal. He's a big deal, so you'll definitely want to change your name before you do anything with him. He's dead, though, so yeah. don't change your name, listeners, no. <laughs> uh, unless you want to. Uh, mostly David Manners played romantic leading men type roles. Oh, I remember in our episode we did talk about a guy who was like, last name was name is Kaiser, and he really wanted to change his name was sort of the joke. So maybe if you're him, maybe you change your name. Well, I remember, uh, uh, what was his name? I think it's Hans, not Hans Bricks or whatever his name is, something Bricks. He changed his name uh, after he did a, a silent Tarzan movie, and then he went on to be uh, that the, the the extra guy that you know that joined the party. Uh, in the search for Sierra Madre, he got, he got killed. You know, he's the one that had the wife. Um, also, uh, you know, Bella Lugosi's real name is not, his last name is Blasco. Lugosi, I think they were, some. the, the legend is that somebody related to him, uh, or it was a la- an area or land that he was kind of naming it after. Uh, also, I mean, Boris Karloff's real name is not Boris Karloff. Uh, we talked about that in I think Frankenstein talked about where he got his last name. Okay, so Boris Karloff, that's not his real name. He's a British stage actor. His, his, his real name is William Henry Pratt. Do not confuse with Chris Pratt. So they're all- The couple are having a very awkward conversation and these sort of like sniffing your eyeball practically. Aren't you hungry? No, darling. Are you? No, of course not. Awfully uncomfortable speech as well as as well as nearly sniffing her eyeball. Are you sure? What is this conversation? <laughs> yeah, they're they're very close and it's kinda cute for a little bit. Uh now they talk about are you hungry? Oh, I'm not hungry. And I was like, I kind of was thinking, is that a hungry joke? Because they're in Hungary. And I'm like, that is a stretch. That sounds like a dad joke, which I thought that was our thing to do is make dad jokes. And here the movie is making a dad joke for us. So, but of course, you know, they're, they're honeymooners and they're in love and they're just being kind of, you know, goofy together, which, hey, um, you know, don't knock it till you try it. It's, it's not a problem with it. So they're on their way to, okay, I don't know how to print. Visegrad? Germbush. Germbush. So you are going to Visegrad? Yes, the Gumbush by bus. A Gumbush is very beautiful. Which is near Visegrad? It's near Visegrad. So there's a little bit of a mix-up in the reservations, and they are asked if they can share a compartment with uh, a Hungarian. His name is Dr. Vitus Verdegast. 
uh, played by Bela Lugosi. Um, he's very aristocratic. Of course, Bela Lugosi likes playing those parts. Um, he's always, you know, very aristocratic. He's got that strong accent. He makes a good entrance. Uh, I know when I saw the movie the first time, I didn't know he was going to be a protagonist or hero, so to speak. And I was like, uh-oh, um, do you really want to share your compartment with Bela Lugosi? I know he's probably a nice guy, but he's scary. I'm sorry. And he's actually human this he's, time. Yes, obviously... he's a human. But he's not the villain of the piece. It's bo- Spoiler, it's Boris Karloff. Again, this is to doubt because they both do villainous things, as I talked about earlier. Yes, they kind of do, but, but but you can understand the the vengeance that uh, Vertigast has. It's it's more of a, I'm doing this because Boris Karloff's character is so evil. So they're a little bit creeped out by the guy. They're like, oh. So when the train starts up again, a suitcase like starts to fall, and he actually saves them. Uh, he grabs it. And he says, after all, better to be frightened than to be crushed. So <laughs> uh, the interesting thing is that Vetus, he's going to be frightened and crushed before the end credits even roll. So there we go. So he tells him he's going to Visegrad uh, and then on by bus. Um, he goes to visit an old friend. And he says it really creepy, like, I go to visit an old friend, you know. So you're like, okay, uh is this really a friend? Because you sound like you're not really happy to see him, but you're like, I'm going to go see him anyway. And then this is probably somewhat where he delves into his backstory as well. A little bit, yeah. Uh, the old friend, he doesn't really mention in detail, but we know that it's an architect and engineer named Hjalmar Perlzig. While Joan is sleeping, and I was like, oh, this is kind of creeper, uh, he reaches out and, and gently touches her hair. Peter kind of looks at him like, bro, what are you doing? He says, I beg your indulgence, my friend. Eighteen years ago, I left a girl, so like your lovely wife, to go to war. Kaiser and country, you know. She was my wife. Have you ever heard of Kurgal? It is a prison below Amsk on Lake Baikal. Many men have gone there. Few have returned. So it sounds like he's kind of like triumphant, like, I'm back, baby. So, um, he's returning home after 18 years. Three years in the war, 15 years in a prison. So this is uh, good things to be excited about for him because he's like, I'm coming back for revenge. That's, that's a that's drama. After, after, that's what revenge is for. Revenge requires an event to happen and then secondly for you to come back and get payback. That's right. So that's definitely the exciting thing part well, of drama it. just went up a little bit, meaning he's got a purpose to what he's doing. So I didn't know he owned a dolphin. <laughs> yes, he has a porpoise. Uh, his name is Flipper. So, in the middle of the night, everybody gets off the train at Visegrad and get into a rickety bus, and he tells uh, the bus driver to go to, go to Engineer Perlzig's house. So, they're driving ahead of the darkness. It's really cool looking. It's it's in the countryside where the Great War was fought. The Great War meaning World War One, right? So, uh, they're talking, and uh, the bus driver is even saying that uh, people continue to live here, even with their loved ones buried in mass graves. Perlzig built his mansion overlooking a bloody battlefield uh, directly on the site of Fort Marmarush, the greatest battlefield or graveyard in the world. He says all All of this country was one of the greatest battlefields of the war. Tens of thousands of men died here. The ravine down there was piled 12 deep with dead and wounded men. The little river below was swollen, red, a raging torrent of blood. Yes, please. It's awesome. That high hill yonder, where Engineer Polting now lives, was the site of Fort Marmarosh. He built his home on its very foundation. 
So this is a very good introduction for a place on the side of a hill. Uh, though it doesn't compare to, in my restless dreams I see that town. Silent Hill. Yes. And it reminds me... Seriously, that, it's a really good monologue. Yeah, there's little there's little elements of of the old Dark House, too. I think they, they... Of course, a lot of movies use this. They use a storm or some kind of uh, nature's fury to put a barrier between... You know, to keep you in a house with people that are wanting to kill you. If it was just a lovely day and everything was great, you just get out and leave. You know, it's just... There's no movie. So you got to have a rain, stormy, dark, rainy night to kind of keep people in... But place. this is an awful good uh, backdrop uh, mat, I believe. It's a really, really good one. Yes. So, again, while, there's, while he's telling the story, the bus skids. There's an accident. The driver's killed. Joan is unconscious. She's knocked out from the wreckage. And uh, Thamal, uh, Vertigas servant carries her. They make their way on foot to the clifftop fortress home of Hjalmar Perlzig, played by Dwarf Karloff. Uh, I did get vibes of the old dark house, seriously. And it, you know, it features a house prominently that has a unique style in Old Dark House. Again, a unique history of it. Unnaturally bigger than usual. This one, uh, we'll discuss uh, its unique feature. So, Boris Karloff's character is possibly named after Austrian architect and art director Hans Perlzig. So again, there's another architect that's like, oh, let me look up a name for an architect. Oh, look, Hans Perlzig. 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 They're having trouble with the names. <laughs> Perfect. Well, the reason why the name is in there is Hans Perlzig worked on the Golem, which we check out our episode, Dear Golem. Uh, director Edgar G. Ulmer was a set designer with him. There's also an inspiration by Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley. Some of this stuff. He was a, um, he was a, I wouldn't say straight up Satanist, but he was like magician, uh, sorcerer, uh, black magic aficionado. I mean, he's very famous, very controversial figure to be sure he's he was doing that kind of thing around that time uh, i think some of the people involved with this movie actually were in a quote black magic ceremony that was done by alistair crowley so they're like oh well let's use that in this or and change some you know th- things around to protect you know the realist of it is it truly based on a black magic ritual does it make you feel weird to watch it no because we'll find out soon they made up all this stuff all right uh, you're inside, and remember you said that the house was very modern-looking for, for 1934. And I mean, and we mean modernistic in the modern view of modernistic, because it does seem to have a lot of futuristic things, and a digital clock as well, which can fly somewhat over your head when you realize, oh, this was a century ago. This must have been, like, a unique vision that they sort of predicted somehow or that there was already some indication of this kind of style already in the 1930s yes which is interesting so the doorbell maybe it was carl lemley jr's house they based it off i don't know (laughs) sorry that's a joke so the uh yeah the house that uh lemley built uh i thought that was universal as they're coming to the door the lights come on we see this, but they don't, is there is a, a bedroom with kind of a, a sheet kind of drawn up. You kind of, you can see through it, transparent. And Pearls, it gets up and he's laying next to, I think, a blonde woman. And you're like, okay, who is that? But you know that that's Boris Karloff. You can recognize his, his slim, very tall. He's very tall anyway, or decently tall, I would say. He's towering over you. He can. In Frankenstein. When he's such. Frankenstein, yes. But he, I don't, I don't know if he's as tall as, as all that. Oh, as we said, we did give him, like, boots to make him taller yeah. in our Frankenstein episode. 
He's still tall, though. Just taller. Unnaturally tall. Seven foot. So, remember you said the door uh, The door was opened by Pearlzig's uh, housekeeper, uh, e- played by Egon Brecker. Is that the dude who looked awfully like Bella Lugosi? He did. He looked like his cousin or something. Just with a flatter head and... Spock, jet black yeah, hair. Like a, like a Mo, a Mo Howard haircut, you know? Like, Bella Lugosi didn't have as black hair as he did, but he sure sort of looks like him. Maybe a little bit Spockish, actually. That's a good comparison. I wonder if Bella Lugosi's hair is, like, naturally brown or dark brown, and they, and they darken it up. Probably. I mean, hard to tell. So, Vertigast is concerned about uh, Joan, the injured woman, and requests that he be awakened. Uh, of course, he comes down, uh, and there's a lot of silhouette. He's He doesn't say a lot at the beginning. It's very, you know, kind of creepy. Dr. Vertigas treats uh, Joan's wounds, uh, and they, he also knocks her out with a narcotic or a sedative or something like that. We'll see that again. Um, Pearlzig comes down. He's looming. He's wearing a, a, a robe. That we'll see almost looks priestly because he does wear that robe later. And there are sliding doors in this house, so he does slide open some doors, which is interesting. I mean, already in Japan by like a mile shot, but still, there are lots of sliding doors in modern homes. Not a lot, maybe, but like some. He's an architect and and he's an engineer. He's, of course, going to do some futuristic nonsense. Yeah, because he's like, oh, doors without knobs. How the cavemen from ancient times must feel about this. The home of the future today. It's the Flintstones. They're celebrating Christmas before it even happens. Oh, don't get me started on that. So uh, there's a uh, distinctive jagged widow's peak. Yeah, he shaved it into a V cut. It kind of looks like that, yeah. It's a unique cut. And it's very cool looking. He'd be looking respectable. He said, I'm here to visit an old friend. And when they say hi to each other, it's very like, hello, buddy. He says, it has been a long time, Yalmar. The years have been kind to you. When they're alone together, Vertigast is like nice, kind of outwards. But he's kind of tense, you know, when he when he confronts Pearlzig for betraying him and, and Hungarians like 15 years earlier. They just, they have that common beef and they just can't let it go. Pearlzig had been commander of Fort Marmarish during the last terrible battle of World War One, And it's thought that he perhaps betrayed the fort to the enemy, the Russians, right? Thousands of countrymen died. Uh, a lot of people got captured. Uh, and then he, and then of course, uh, Pearlzig ran for his life. Vertigas would have been one of the guys that got captured. He spent 15 years at Kurgal. Uh, it's a military prison where the soul is killed slowly. He is coming for revenge. He's coming for retribution and coming for justice. And I'm here for it. Although the movie is not an action film. It's a drama film. It really is good for drama. I th- and it's also fairly located in a house as well. It literally just takes place in a house, really. And a train and a road to a house. So yeah, the old dark house is a pretty good comparison because that's sort of the treatment it gets. Although you don't get a big train scene, though. They arrive on car. But But that car scene is really good. I like that one. So the doctor has returned to learn what happened of his wife, Karen, and their baby daughter. Uh, You sold Marmarush to the Russians. Scuttled away in the night and left us to die. Is it to be wondered that, that you should choose this place to build your house? A masterpiece of construction built upon the ruins of the masterpiece of destruction. This is a really great quote, honestly. It is, it is. So he re- he finds out that Pearlzig had married Vertigast's wife during his imprisonment and told Karen and the young daughter that he had been killed in action. So this is, like, horrible. He said, you told Karen I'd been killed. I mean, you always wanted her. So he basically wanted her the whole time, 
and they uh, he kind of supposedly forced her to go with him to different places, you know, South America, Spain, the regular America. <laughs> and then finally here, back here, he says, where is she? And he says, Vitus, you are mad. Peter comes in. He does like appear Batman style, uh, I think, in this conversation. He just randomly appears because the camera pan hit him. How did you get there, Mr. Batman? Well, he's so. He blends into the uh, background because he's so vanilla. <laughs> it's because the camera wasn't focusing on him. Oh, he's, he's outside the frame. He doesn't exist. This is a very interesting house. Out of sight, out of mind, am I right? Yeah. And in general, both being a forgettable character and his entrance into the conversation being sudden and camera revealed is also adds up to like being you're saying because he's wooden and he blends he's david manners okay wood can't compare he's fine he see you knock on some wood for luck you knock on david manners he won't answer oh man that's cruel (laughs) he does okay i mean it's all it's all a joke i'm sure you know plus he's probably dead yeah he passed away and we can kind of talk about his acting knock on dead wood oh oh all right, so Perlzig turns the dial on an Art Deco radio, and it plays uh, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. indeed put it in question whether this song was diegetic or undiegetic concerning all the classical music that has been used though all right so for our listeners that don't understand what diegetic music is it's music that's that's played uh in the movie like if a character is listening to like a metallica song in universe playing a song or like i don't know last of us or no uncharted playing crash bandicoot that could be sort of seen as diegetic, as in the video game or the movie, uh, sorry, the music is in the thing, where it being non-diegetic music, I think, was the one where uh, it's just background music overlaid. They can't hear the Max Steiner score, I'm sorry. It's not. It's non-diegetic, but in this case, I think this is diegetic, so... There's some great jokes to play where it's like, what's the music coming from? I hear boss music. I guess there's boss music. A lot of parodies do that. But when an actor reaches over and turns off the radio and the the music stops, you're like, oh, it was diegetic. Uh, So it's kind of a a, a fake out. Though sometimes there can be times where it's like fades from diegetic to undiegetic. Yes. To where it's like, you know, you can obviously hear that when it goes like from sort of compressed and sounds like in the world to sounding like it's emanating from the camera itself you know so but this has been an interesting conversation about diegetic music you've been listening to diegetic podcast no all right now peter allison he says uh, i'm an author of mystery stories which is interesting because uh, barbarossa says in pirates of the caribbean he says you're in one so uh yeah he's in one. he's in a mystery which is funny so they do a toast to to joan there, but while they're doing that, you get the titular character of the black cat shows up across the doorway. Uh, so it's interesting that Perlzig owns a cat, or maybe several cats. And I'm like, when you find out why he has them, or that you think maybe he has them on the off chance that Vertigast is going to come around, I, that's what I think. Or maybe he just likes cats, I don't know. So Vertigast shrinks back, drops his glass, and throws a knife at the animal and kills it off screen, okay? He covers his face with his hands. All while the jolly music is playing. I do remark on how sort of unfitting it seems to be. Ludo narrative dissonance. It's, it's a dissonant it's, little bit. It could be better fitting better, but 
Again, the cat just walks in, and he gets stabbed, and that's literally it, and he appears a second time. That's literally the only thing about the Black Cat Poe story versus this one, is the cat appears, the cat appears a couple times and gets killed, but is still unwavering. Yes. That's the only thematic element that ever appears. But again, the way Poe explores it in his story versus, you know, the way that Universal explores it, Universal doesn't really cover it as well. Because it's not trying to, obviously. The depth that Poe gives it is not the depth here. The depth here is different. They want to tell a different story. So uh, sometimes when there's a happy song and someone's doing a horrible thing, it gives it a creepy element to it. Like, this scene, I disagree. So anyway, back to this. So Dr. Vertigas' weakness is that he is uh, a victim of one of the more commoner pho- phobias, but extreme form. He has an intense and all-consuming horror of cats. So fear of cats is called allurophobia, also known as felinophobia, galeophobia, and gatophobia, because, you know, gato is like cat in Spanish. As Joan is kissing her husband in the background, he grabs a statue of, of a woman a figure. So it's kind of interesting that he, I think he kind of secretly light, wants Joan. Joan has a strange behavior when the black cat gets killed. But Vertigas says that's probably due to a strange narcotic he gave her, which made it interesting because Bela Lugosi was addicted to morphine and methadone, which are narcotics. That just kind of seems strange to me. So Perlzig, he starts talking about the age-old myth of the black cat, the the living embodiment of evil, and, uh, you know, something about death, like a symbol of death, too. So he says that the narcotic can mess with people sometimes. The victim becomes, in a sense, mediumistic, a vehicle for all the intangible forces in operation around her. How does a narcotic make you open to the supernatural? I don't get that. So there's a line here that's great. Uh, Peter Allison says, Sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. And Vertigas says, Supernatural? Perhaps. Baloney? Perhaps not. Perhaps not. That's great. There are many things under the sun. Sort of ecclesiastical reference there. There are many things under the The sun. sun. Yes, absolutely. He says, Supernatural, perhaps baloney, perhaps not. It just sounds funny to hear Lugosi say baloney. Good review of this film, I guess. Supernatural, perhaps baloney, perhaps not. That's a great review. Uh, you can put that in the blog post later. I did. You did? Oh, that's great. Uh, he bids everybody good night, says sleep well. Peter says something like, this is a nice, cozy, unpretentious, insane asylum. If I wanted one of those, I'll have him build it for us. Uh, so Perlzig, he goes down to lower levels and chambers of this fortress, right? And you see these transparent glass displays, and it's got the bodies of six women, at least, floating in suspended animation, you think. And he's stroking the fur of a black cat, so obviously he has another living one. And does this seem to predate James Bond in Villains That Stroke Cats? Maybe. Possibly. He's not sitting down, it doesn't count, I guess. Yeah, exactly, or he's in a wheelchair or something like that. So he thinks he's sneaking into Vertigast's room, but Vertigast and Peter have switched bedrooms, uh, which, you know, every time bedroom switching happens, I think of uh, The Monster Walks, but I also am thinking about a scene in The Raven now, where they did the same thing. He also wakes up Peter, and he's surprised. And Vertigas says, where is my wife? And Perlzig says, I shall take you to her. So this is a really good part. They go down uh, to get a grand tour. They go down the staircase, and then all the way down the the bowels of Fort, former Fort Marmorish. And Perlzig says, this was the entrance to the gun turrets. Don't you recognize it? Vertigas says, I can still sense death in the air. And he's saying that it's undermined with dynamite, 
as well. And that's the old chart room for the long range guns. So you see the chart on the wall. Now what they see is he flips on another light switch and you see the preserved body of Vertigast's wife, Karen, uh, stolen from the doctor and got married with him while he was imprisoned. I guess she just had to see the manager and thought that he was a manager. <laughs> so many Karen jokes. We- Dad made him from the very first cast screen. So- I did, I did. Jacqueline Wells, don't recognize her. Lucille Lund is, is a total Karen. I'll let, I'll let you make a couple more for the end of this. I guess we're not Karen anymore. Oh, oh, it hurts. All right, so um, Pearlsick says that she died of pneumonia two years after the war, and he had embalmed her to preserve her corpse. The daughter also died, so Vertigast starts to lose control, and he pulls out a gun. Well, guess what? Black Cat enters in and paralyzes him. He crashes back into the glass of the chart backdrop, uh, and there's a really good sequence here. takes a first-person view as Pearlsick is, is taking him out the room and up the staircase. And was this the part with the Beethoven's ninth, I believe? I know. I think it, it's Beethoven's uh, seventh or second, which uh, I, I, this is one of my favorite pieces. I've, I've seen it in so many movies. Honestly, a very well-placed piece of music. Okay, so he said, you know, he has a, an awesome monologue, which honestly, we need to play the monologue here in full. Of what use are all these melodramatic gestures? You say your soul was killed, and that you have been dead all these years. And what of me? Did we not both die here in Marmorous 15 years ago? Are we any the less victims of the war than those whose bodies were torn asunder? Are we not both the living dead? And now you come to me. Playing at being an avenging angel, childishly thirsting for my blood. We understand each other too well. We know too much of life. We shall play a little game, Venus. A game of death, if you like. But under any circumstances, we shall have to wait until these people are gone, until we are alone. So Pearlzig goes back to the bedroom where the blonde woman is laying there. It's not Karen, the one that was in the uh, down, but it's played by the same actress, but this is the daughter. So the daughter did not die. Uh, both Karens are played by Lucille Lund. Uh, it's his stepdaughter, really, but it's just uh, weird. She says, you know, what? what's going on? And he says, oh, it's nothing, only an accident in the road below. I want you to stay in this room all day tomorrow, Karen. You are the very core and meaning of my life. No one shall take you from me, not even Vetus, not even your father. Pretty creepy. It is super creepy. It's like, I was married to your mom, now I'm married to you. Ugh. So Vertigast is not aware that his, his daughter uh, has succeeded her late mother as, as Pearlzig's wife, okay? So in Vertigast's bedroom, the doctor's servant draws a knife, but Vertigast tells him to put it away until he's told otherwise. The house is rigged with dynamite, and they have to be patient. They have to be discreet, and Thamal must pretend to be... Pearlzig's servant. There's like, it talks about hypnosis at one point. So I'm like, okay. In bed though, Pearlzig is reading a book called The Rites of Lucifer. Just casually, you know, great bedtime stories. As you do. As you do, you know. (laughs) It puts me to sleep every time. Puts you to sleep every time. Death, destruction, evil. Devil. Sigils, devil. Yeah. So. Black (laughs) cat. Oh, you're scaring me now. 
what it reminded me of was uh, the episode we did on Nosferatu where Harker in that finds a book that talks about lore about the vampires, which kind of is a in, an inf- a small info dump to help him defeat He's like, it. oh, great bedtime story. You know, whatever, tosses it away. Yeah, another one. Yeah, and he throws it away. That like, had a different role in the story. This is one that's indicative of, uh, in the Black Cat, it's indicative of Perlzig's uh, uh, personality and hobbies, I guess. Well, you say. and and what he's going to do. But it's just so casual that it's so funny. It, in, in, it reads as follows: In the night, in the dark of the moon, the high priest assembles his disciples for the sacrifice. The chosen maiden. So, who is the chosen maiden? We'll find out. So, Joan. It's the next day. It's a nice day. Joan doesn't remember anything really. And it's kind of strange. Dr. Vertigast is invited to the Black Mass that is going to be performed the next night. Uh, Joan's destiny is going to be determined in a game of chess, which kind of is like, um, I guess she doesn't have any agency. I guess she doesn't have her own decisions. But again, there is like stuff about, oh, it's a game of chess to play, the revenge. They're sort of dueling and backstabbing. But did you say Black Mass? Black Mass. Black Mass. So that's either referring to the... Catholic belief of mass or that there's literally a black mass of goo on the floor being summoned. No, 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 no. That would be awesome though. But, uh, to see, but in, in certain forms of, of, of Satanism or Luciferianism, they, uh, what, what little I've read, uh, there are certain aspects of it that are, you know, if the Catholics have mass and it's a holy sacred mass, right? It's, it's where you come together and you take communion and all that. It's the black mass, so it's everything is reversed. If there's crosses, they're upside down. You know, if there's an altar, it's it's a woman that's the altar, and you and you put a cup on her, uh, and and you know, and it's everything is is reversed. You know, uh, instead of seven being a, a good number, it's six. You know, so um, they are playing a game of fate over Joan, and it's the dark of the moon. He keeps saying, uh, "I'm going to play chess for her, and provided if I win." They're free to go, right? So there's a challenge. This is the only movie we're going to feel sorry for a Karen, I guess. This is prime time then for two very comedic characters to then appear in the next scene, didn't they? Yes. And again, the gombash pistion uh, debate rages on till this day. I don't know. Everybody's got beef. They're just like, pistion, gombash, But first, what they try to do is they're like, okay, uh, we got to go down to Visegrad. She's got to call her parents in Vienna. And they're playing, you know, chess the whole time. And he says, thank you for your hospitality. Uh, can I have a car? And Perlzig's servant comes back and says, the car is out of commission. That's convenient. He probably he, poked the tires with a knife. Well, or he just said it doesn't work. I mean, all he said is it doesn't work. So Peter is led to telephone, but it doesn't work either. And Perlzig says to Vetus, it's really good. He says... Did you hear that, Vetus? The phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. It's like he's saying, you know, there's death here. Even the phone is dead. That's awesome. So as they are leaving, uh, Vertigast is checkmated by Pearlzig. And and, uh, and there's a line, you lose, Vetus. You lose, Vetus. But Boris Karloff doesn't speak it. It's actually off camera. And Edgar uh, Ulmer says it. That's a little bit of a 
trivia thing. Ed probably could have stuck it in because it's like, oh, well, we forgot to stick this in. I probably will do it instead of getting Boris Karloff like two weeks after rap to be like, hey, can you record this one line for me, please? Thank you. I forgot it. Instead, he probably would have been like, oh, I'll just record it by myself, you know? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people do that. So as they're trying to leave, Peter gets uh, knocked on the back of the head by Thamal. So he's been ordered to obey Pearlzig by Vertigast. So Joan screams and faints. And she gets uh, taken upstairs and locked in the bedroom. Peter gets put in the old gun turret room down in the cellar. And it has a cool feature where it kind of, to get itself to lock, it rotates. It's kind of cool. Now, Pearlzig plays on a giant organ. You know, the, not like that's classic. I mean, if you had a bingo board, you could put it on there. I mean, you probably won't get this one for Swan Lake if you have a Swan Lake on your bingo card. But, I mean, the Vampire Bat, we also did make note of that not having the, the Swan Lake at the beginning. But, you know, that's that's cool. Well, Takata, wasn't that also in um, in a lot of uh, Phantom of the Opera? Supposedly that's what he's playing. Is Takata and Fugue, but I don't it's know. It's classic for being either evil, a bit of fan of the opera, Smictionaire, or vampires. Right. So, Vertigast has the key to Joan's bedroom, and he goes in there, and she's kind of scared of him, but he says that we're all in danger. I, you know, why you, why have you let him live? Uh, well, I'm going to get him very soon, but I have to do what he says for right now. He says, did you, you ever, ever hear, hear of Satanism, Satanism? The worship of the devil, of evil. Apertig is the great modern priest of that ancient cult. At night, dark of the moon, the rites of Lucifer are celebrated. And if I'm not mistaken, he intends you to play a part in that ritual. Dear child, be brave. No matter how hopeless it all seems. Vertigast uh, leaves and finds Pearlzig down, down there. He has to give the key to Joan's room. And then, uh, after a black cat runs by... Karen, she enters into Joan's room, and she's also called uh, Madame Pearlzig, uh, is what she calls herself. So, Joan says... Karen? Not Karen Vandergast? Yes. Yes, how did you know, my lady? Well, I... I know your father. Oh, no. You are mistaken. My father died in prison. Her Pearlzig married my mother. She died when I was very young. And he married you? You're his wife? Yes. Creepy. So, Joan says that, that Vetus did not die in the destruction of Marmarush. Uh, he is alive and trying to, to help you. Pearlzik enters the room, picks up the black cat. This is Mr. Bigglesworth. <laughs> Mr. Pickles. No, do <laughs> And looks at uh, Karen really creepily. He, he tells her to leave without words. And supposedly, he did, did something to her in the next room. We don't know what it is until we find out later. So... It's coming, the dark of the moon. This is the night, okay? Uh, and it's a really cool scene. Uh, he puts on a black robe, probably the most memorable scene in the movie to me, other, th- other than how Vertigast gets his revenge. He leads it in the main hall of his house. Vertigast is there as the guest. There is an altar with a sideways double cross. Which probably had to have a slight redesign because obviously they couldn't just stick a cross placed on his side because it's like, oh, the Hayes Code would probably be really bad about that. Or in general, just not really, but they did. It's a corrupted form of it. Regardless. Yeah, a double cross, uh, sometimes it, it, it's kind of like uh, it's twice it's twice holy in some instances uh, in, the, in, in some of Christian churches. And the fact that it's laying on its side, it's kind of like knocked over. But it's sort of disguised as a weird, corrupted 
podium sort of Yes, thing. yes. So Perlzig starts doing a chant, and it sounds really creepy, but if you get the translation of it, it's really nothing to it. He says, Cum grano salis, fortis cadre sedere non potest. Yeah, just give me the translation. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> You're like, skip to the English. If you want the Latin, then listen to the film. Yes, absolutely. He says, With a grain of salt, a brave man may fall, but he cannot yield. To err is human. Uh, the wolf may change his skin, but not his nature. Truth is mighty and will prevail. External actions show inter- internal secrets. Remember when life's path is steep to keep your mind even. That's like good advice, you know, in Latin. A lot of proverb and, you know, like little things that to err as human is insane. Yes. Because it's like, they can sort of apply, but it's just like, you know, filling out the thing. It's like say, it's like if you're being, trying to say French and you end up saying bonjour, 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 bonjour. That's just hello over and over again. You know, not everybody in the audience knew Latin. They would just know this is creepy, right? So they were just like, you know, just random proverbs and stuff that we've heard in magazines. But one the inter- interesting thing that they say is with a grain of salt. So basically meaning take this with a grain of salt. You know, it's not as important as, as, as it seems what I'm saying. Which is interesting, even though this is like the whole climax of the movie because they're... Uh, lots of shifting with, you know, uh, Vertigas doing things and uh, arriving onto the scene. He's traveling up to theirs. They're doing this. There's sort of a lot of climactic feeling and tension in the conflict and, you know, toward this part of the film. And it's just uh, the ritual is just with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an Easter egg joke. But one of the female cultists there... Maybe it's her first time, too, and she shrieks. And that's where they probably take this opportunity to... Vertigas rescues Joan. Yes, and they sneak away, and they go down to the underground tunnels, because supposedly that's a way to get out. So Peter has escaped from the little uh, twist, you know, the little rotating thing, but he is knocked out by the, the butler guy, the guy that looks like Lugosi. Yeah, they're having a big sort of epic duel. They are. The mall... He kills uh, Perlzig's uh, housekeeper, but not before he is shot as well. He's mortally wounded, but it takes him a little bit to die, right? So Joan uh, manages to tell Vertigas that Karen is still alive and married to Perlzig. He, when he finds that out, he freaks out. You know, he's like, he's like, he shakes her. He's so berserk at this point. Like, if he was mad before, he comes to life. So in the control chamber, he is looking in the laboratory. He's he's searching for his daughter. But guess what? In the embalming room, he removes a sheet from the slab and finds Karin dead. And he's he lets out an, a, just a, this agonized cry, right? So... Uh, Pearl Can't compare to uh, Mitchum's scream in Night of the Hunter. Oh, Check out that bonus episode. He's, he's yeah, the best. Really Mitchum's the best. So, Perlzig has left the cult ceremony. He's tracked him down there. He comes upon Vertigast and attacks him. And while they're fighting, uh, Thamal comes out. He's almost dead. And he overpowers Perlzig. So, here's where Perlzig gets his just desserts. As revenge, Perlzig is, is, is shackled to an embalming torture rack where he's stripped off of his robes and he's going to be skinned alive by Vertigast. Thamal drops dead. Uh, Vertigast has the best line here and he says, do you know know what I'm going to do to you now? No. Did you ever see an animal skin? (laughs) That's what I'm going to do to you now. Fair the skin from your body. Slowly. 
So if you've seen like a potato or apple oh, peeler, no. he's literally just taking that thing or like a cheese. Oh, cheese! We grater. use that thing for cheese, a cheese-looking thing. It took it to his forehead, so that's very gross. Well, I didn't have that imagery in my head before, but it I... was a cheesy movie anyway. Oh. I didn't know the villain was made oh. out of cheese as well. Oh no, that hurts. That really hurts right there on my side. Um, so. I didn't have that image in my head before of, 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 of him being hit, uh, scraped in the face by a cheese grater, but I do now, and I want to thank you for that, and I will never probably sleep again. So that's what happens. Now, uh, Joan is watching, and she shrieks. Peter regains consciousness. He comes on the scene after hearing the screams. He's trying to get through the gate. He sees Vertigast trying to, to help out Joan. He shoots Vertigast in thinking that he's messing with Joan. He says, I was only trying to help. Now, please go. So Vertigast goes to a large bank of instruments and switches, and he grabs one of them. It's it's the red switch. Nope, that was the black switch. Five minutes. It's monochrome. You can't tell. So he pulls it, and so basically five minutes, and his rotten cult is going to be no more. Remember that they said that there was dynamite kind of mined underneath the fortress. And quite an explosive ending oh, for this nice. movie as well. So Vertigas says, it has been a good game. And in our second episode coming up, The Bride of Frankenstein, we'll make some good comparison to this ending. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about the explosive ending. Because spoilers, it sort of ends the same a way. A lot of these endings do try to come up with something to blow everything to bits, uh, or to have everything <laughs> I mean, sink under the ground. Like a James Bond movie... I don't know, at least one James Bond movie probably ends this way where they're just riding in a motorcycle away from an explosion, exploding building or a on fire building with the damsel in the arms. And we also get a, we have to get a kind of a, of a, of a smile moment or a, a slightly brighter moment at the end because, uh, Peter Allison and Joan are, are going back home or they're going to Budapest and uh, he, Peter is reading a review of his latest mystery called Triple Murder. It says in Triple Murder, Mr. Allison's latest mystery thriller, he fulfills the promise shown. We feel, however, that Mr. Allison has, in the sense, overstepped the bounds of the matter of credibility. These things would never, but without a further stretch of the imagination, actually happen. We wish that Mr. Allison would confine himself to the most... Uh, to the possible, instead of letting his melodramatic imagination run away from him. Both funny thing that's also sort of describing the impossibility of this film, and maybe on a further level, the original Poe story. It does begin with them saying, you know, I'm going to write this, but you're not going to believe me. Oh! Sort of, at the beginning of that. Failed to mention that, but that was sort of the way that he did it. Because it's like, I've been through, like, horrors imagine unimaginable but it's not that you know cheesy as it sounds though it's it sounds actually, cooler it sounds cooler and creepier in the story it sounds cooler in the quotation right right but in the in this you know the, the fact that he's a mystery writer and, and poe was known as a mystery writer um that's probably the only real connections this movie has to that even it's poe i didn't know he could write <laughs> mystery novels i thought he was just a panda oh and no he could eat, only could eat noodles welcome welcome to kung fu panda Review, this has been Jason and William. No, uh, but... Guest starring Jack Black someday. Someday. Actually joking, I don't think we could ever get it. No, we couldn't. See this clip being taken out of context and saying this age like milk? Oh, wow. So, uh, the thing is, we've got some really good, you know, good movies, and then we've got some really good ones kind of mi- mixed in there. Yeah, we got some there. great movies coming out in the future, but this is a pretty good starter to that with a universal film 
sort of tagging along and sort of quality to the mummy I said earlier. Right. It's sort of a little bit of that. It's sort of catching those waves and stuff, but it's like, you know, it's it it's definitely probably deserves to be there. Sort it of. It does. A little bit. It's definitely solid start to a season two, but Bride of Frankenstein is where they would put all the money and stuff, as we'll talk about next time. So there's some elements of Bride of Frankenstein that almost are a little bit tongue-in-cheek, kind of like the ridiculous nature of horror. Because um, as you uh, you know, as your research told you, the horror elements of it were starting to wane a little bit. They're starting to go down a little bit. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be a lot more horror kind of movies, scary movies. My theory is that a lot of the reviews, they, they're like, if you like that sort of thing, you know, or, or for those that are into horror, it's basically, instead of looking at it as good acting or good story and looking at it, you know, as any other movie you would, they're kind of like, you know, this is for those kind of people that like that kind of thing. And for it, it's, it kind of puts it in its own box. It's it, it doesn't stand up next to, you know, these really big feature A pictures. Uh, you know, it's it, it's push it off to the side because it's a B picture or, or C picture. Yeah, it's sort of on the sidelines, but I mean, that's literally movie business is that there are like thousands of movies coming out every day. And they make all sorts of different types of movies, so there are going to be some movies on the sidelines are great, but it's still progressing that history. Yes, and and the thing is, I think that there was horror movies kind of got a bad rap, so to speak, because they're considered not prestige pictures. And I think that as a lot of the money that was spent on these, you know, they probably didn't see tons of it come back, or if it did come back, they wanted it to come back in prestige pictures, and as the Limleys were kind of getting phased out and new people were coming in to, to run uh, Universal. But it did sort of start waning a little bit, especially the 1940s started waning of that classic horror. And then when the Hays Code ended, it started going into that, you know, bloody horror and exorcist kind of stuff. Yeah, that too much. happens today that we can't ever cover. But we do have some science fiction and adventure films coming up as well. We have, like, Things to Come, which is sort of science fiction. Very sci-fi. HG Wells. We have Invisible Ray, which sounds Invisible very Ray is very science fiction and, and less horror. Yeah, but those are pretty great as well. And we'll see a lot of those, especially in the 50s. You'll have a lot of those cheesy science fiction movies in the 1950s. So that'll be awesome for, like, our next seasons. And But uh, this has been episode 21, and uh, we'll come back for... Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the epic sequel to the famous Frankenstein. This was a very hyped up picture, as we'll talk about. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to get love to talk to you about that next time. And uh, we are going to sign off and begin anew for our second episode of season two later. So, take care. Take care. Bye bye. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at cinematicfanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast. Ending transmission now.